SAFM 104-107 nationwide. Leading the conversation. All right, so thank you so much for staying with us. It is 10 minutes after 1 o'clock. We are speaking about preservation of African culture. Professor Abel Pinar from the Northwest University campus in Mahikeng um, is also a health sciences PhD. He holds a PhD in health sciences, and we're talking about all sorts of things. He, he's qualified in many things. So we're going to try and bring it back to indigenous knowledge systems. Prof, thank you once again for talking to us. And it's nice to have you in, in South Africa. Uh, thank you, uh, uh, Ms. Mutene. I, I just would like to correct something. I'm uh, not anymore at the Northwest University okay. Mafikan campus. Yes. I'm having an adjunct professorate at the University of Venda. At the University of Venda now? Yes, I'm all at right. the University of Venda. I'm apologizing for not updating no you. No problem at all. We've got that now um, on our records. Thank you for that. So, Prof, <laughs> one of the things that has preoccupied um, ourselves here as, as a team is we seem to be at you know, we seem to be on the back foot when it comes to knowledge systems, technology mm-hmm. um, that seems to have been around us all along that we are now rediscovering, almost rediscovering for the first time and yet it has been here all along. Why is it that we find ourselves as a continent here where only now we are proudly speaking about moringas and mklonyanes and all these indigenous plants and medicines that we've always had at our disposal that we're now only now starting to recognize them and dare say even begin to start talking about them in scientific uh, studies and so on. Why is it that we, we are on the back foot of our own technologies and medicines? Yes, uh, uh, Ms. Mutena, I think we need to um, look at what happened to us in Africa as a whole. And I also think that happened with Asia, but in Asia they were a bit smarter than us in Africa. Mm. You see, uh, colonization uh, uh, was not a small thing that happened to us. Mm. And I think for a long time, even after our freedom, in quotation marks, we still sat with colonial hegemony. Mm. That means that although the colonialists were not um, uh, 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 enslaving us anymore, we still have a slave mentality. You would often hear, and and I find it often in conversations, uh, when people say that, you know, I actually don't believe in those things Mm. that you are talking about. It's called those things. That's a a common statement. And uh, you might find this is an indigenous African, and it's shocking that we are deculturalized in that fashion. So uh, what has remained with us in Africa is colonial hegemony we we still shaking we still under the impression i think uh, and not that mental health is my speciality i think we have gone into a corner of mental illness where we suffer from colonial hegemony where we cannot acknowledge who and what we are but the positive thing that happened and uh, uh, most of it happened after 1994 was uh, and when the constitution after 1996 came in 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 power where we had freedom of speech and freedom of practice i must also say that uh, a, a number of us as indigenous africans has continued to practice and have uh, our parents have continued to teach us uh, because 
the first level of education is in the house uh, where you grow up. It's your family. And I would like to say family in really the broadened sense of family, uh, the African concept of family. And I would not say extended family because that is a Western mm. term that slipped in. Mm. That now all of a sudden your mother's sister and your father's brother's uh, children are not your brothers and your sisters anymore. Mm. They are now extended families or they become some distant cousins. Mm. So um, the first level of education, and this is not even informal education. You see there are these uh, building blocks that that calibrates our minds, especially if we go through uh, education of higher degrees and mm. so on. Where we start talking about non-formal, informal education, mm-hmm. Education remains education. And the first level of education is in our homes. Mm. And in our homes, as an African child, you, uh, we need to be educated, firstly, who and what we are. That's why in some of our cultures in Africa, you have a poem of the culture, you have um, uh, the cultural uh, uh, recitation, which is um, narrated when the person come out, or uh, sometimes we have the cultural uh, um, uh, how you are identified. So if we if we miss that education at home, we therefore become unrooted, and the wind can blow us anywhere. Uh, and that's why we, as African children of the soil, can talk about. Uh, you know, I actually don't believe in those things that mm-hmm. you are talking about. Mm-hmm. It doesn't uh, touch me. So uh, basically is where we come from is the all the atrocities that we suffered as Africans and you cannot wish it away if you think that all this happened in the 1600s when the first settlers uh, put their foot uh, and discovered us in quotation mark and I heard you you using the word rediscovery mm. it's it's always a fact that uh, uh, most of the historians of the people writing heritage, uh, uh, our histories, say that we were discovered. Now, the (laughs) irony of the case is how can you discover people that were already there? Mm. Uh, 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 Maybe they discovered you before you discovered Mm. them. Mm. So those are the things that we need to look at. So firstly, what happened to us as Africans when we were colonized and also that we were uh, actively deculturalized by the practices that the colonists brought into Africa as a country. And we started to see all our practices, our indigenous practices, our cultural practices as dark things, things of the dark. Mm-hmm. And that's why we use the statement that I don't actually believe in those things. You know, my parents believe in that, and I don't actually believe. And then we miss the first level of education, which is um, the education that we need to have at home, in our families, in our African families. You know, the education that's transferred generation to generation that tells us who we are uh, and where we are rooted. And that includes a holistic pattern of education, uh, whether it's... a Uh, cognitive education, psychomotor, or spiritual education, it's 
a holistic pattern of, uh, of education that we have at home. The second level of education would be the community where we grow up. And uh, this is a bit of a tricky one because a number of us are now growing our children in the suburbs and we forget to take our children back to the villages where we come from so that they at least can know where their origins are. Because it's important always, and especially in an African cultural context, that we know where we originate from. Who are our foreparents and what happened exactly that we are where we are? Because we in, in, in the African community, we have a rite of passage even before we were born. Uh, imagine when people uh, negotiate marriage, they already in some cultures uh, name the woman with the firstborn's name. Mm-hmm. So you have that rite of passage mm-hmm. already before you were born and you were uh, conceptualized before you were born. Mm-hmm. And when you were born, there are certain um, rituals or practices that you are introduced to. And uh, normally a child should be introduced to the family, especially those who were there before us. So it's important that we look at all those things. Firstly, what happened to us? What, our, what was our setbacks during colonial time? What are we suffering from as, as Africans, which I uh, have coined this, that we're suffering from colonial hegemony? Because although the colonialists are not in power anymore, they might be in economic power, but they are not in management power, um, they still rule us to a certain extent because they calibrated us. They made us clean and they taught us how to serve them properly and how to serve the purpose in the long run. And I'm not lamenting about this. I'm actually crying that, as you say, that when are we going to rediscover ourselves in order to revitalize the African child within the African continent and that we are truly, uh, proudly African and South African in Africa. I'm going to ask that we take a quick break as that sinks in and we'll be back with even more questions as well as taking calls on 011-714-2006 and we can take voice notes on 0614-104-107. Here, there and everywhere. SAFM 105.6 FM in Palaborwa. Discussing um, cultural practices and preservation of African cultural practices, Professor Abel Pinar is a consultant, technical advisor in the health reform and innovation education space. His focus is on, on reinforcing indigenous communal healing as a sustainable health science and practice in the continent. Prof, I want to know what, what makes it difficult, and you You've touched on this a little bit. Maybe you'll expand on it. What makes it difficult for a people that is aware of the facts? The facts are we were colonized. The facts are that there were bills, there were laws that prohibited us to practice our African indigenous um, 
cultural practices in, in many different aspects. What makes it difficult for a government, for a people that recognize that, to do something like what they did in New Zealand, where even though there has been a generation that was unable to proudly be Maori, that they have, as a collective, decided to bring that back full on and from school. So it's it's not a, an issue of just in your home. It is in schools. It is it's it's what's been taught as mandatory, not because you feel like it, but as mandatory, so that the the knowledge of a people is 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 recognized formally so by everybody without fail. Why can't we do that if we recognize the fact that colonization is a fact of of our history? Mm-hmm. As I said before, um, uh, colonization uh, is seen as our history. But what has remained with us, we, we cannot undermine the, the, what the apartheid system did with us. Remember that there was the divide and rule system. And now you're talking about collective that happened in New Zealand. In uh, South Africa, uh, if I just look at, at South Africa and Africa, and then I, I can toil out further on the continent, which I'm in touch with my colleagues. Uh, elsewhere. In South Africa, as an African community, we are deeply segregated. Mm. I mean, uh, at university, the newest term that comes up is the, is the term that says that buzzeries are only allocated for black Africans. Now, what kind of a term is that, black Africans? Because if you really look at the African spectra, we are different colors, but as an African community, we are one. And also the segregation by classifying, uh, like the Khoisan descendants are uh, popularly known as Kalets. Mm. And those are the Khoisan descendants. And there's the popular statement that, you know, the Khoi and the Sun is extinct because what has remained are the Kalets. And uh, uh, those are the segregations. So one should not undermine the divide and rule, and the racial segregation, those are the strategies that were used to break us apart so that we do not come together as a collective and we stand for what we believe in. And the second thing is really for government investing, uh, truly investing and putting a budget aside to invest in the reculturalization of us as Africans in the continent and deliberately uh, uh, possibly using the same strategies that were used to deculturalize us and uh, new strategies to bring on board to for us to really find our roots from where we are from and to start to uh, uh, make our cultural practices alive again, the revitalization mm-hmm. of our cultural practices. And actually, a cultural practice is a lifestyle. Mm-hmm. It's not something special. It's a lifestyle. When I look at, uh, and especially the health, which I'm exposed to most of the time, when I look at what uh, our four parents were doing is with each, <laughs> before the coming of each season, they used to boil certain medicinal plants and upfront 
give us those plant medicines in order to enter the new season. And uh, you like before entering win- winter, they would boil things like lingana, venerate, and all those uh, medicinal plants in combination in order to prepare us not to get flu. Now, uh, today we are having high debates on vaccination or who is not vaccinated and all those kind of things. But in Africa, we had our own practices in, in preventing uh, new illnesses or any illnesses to, to come into the community. And those are the practices that families had, that at certain stages that there is this practice in the family that you are prepared for the new season that comes in. So these practices have died out and we are solely exposed mm. to Western practices, mm. which a lot of times we are not even uh, educated deep enough in the Western practices or we do not know where they originate mm. from, mm. but we claim them as if it's our own because we do not, we are not educated in our own. So the gap happened when we were oppressed literally and even if we are out of oppression, we still remained with the colonial hegemony that we still live as if uh, uh, those acts, those laws, those bills are there. Mm-hmm. And I'm not even sure whether the Witchcraft Act is scraped because uh, um, uh, about a couple of years ago when I did an intense study on that, one of my students, mm-hmm. we found that the Witchcraft Act is still there mm-hmm. and you could still be punished on the Witchcraft Act when you merely practice indigenous health practices. And even when you look at uh, the new acts supporting us, in some ways it might be very limited because we did not develop enough regulations to put these acts in practice. But at least the Constitution protects all of us in order to, to roll out. So basically what I'm saying is, how we were deculturalized and a deliberate effort should be done now mm. in order to reculturalize us, in order to revitalize the African cultural practices or the African lifestyle because it's a lifestyle. And uh, when we look at our lifestyle, we're neither here nor there because we have become reeds that move with the wind Mm. that's coming. Mm. That's why we get very shocked when something happens because we are not prepared, we are not not grounded in what we believe in. I'm going to ask the listeners to to call in with their own um, stories around their family rituals, their family cultural practices, and how much, as you said, you know, we were colonized. We've had so many uh, things happen to us that there is a lot that is lost from from even names, people's surnames, people's classifications, um, and so on. How much as a family have you lost? What do you still have? How much do you still uh, hand down to, to your children and to the next generation? How much of what you know to be your culture are you still able to hand down? And how much do you think you've lost? I'd love to take your calls on 11 2006 and a WhatsApp number on 0614-104-107. It is 1.30. Let me go quickly to Nandika Bukas for the latest in headlines, and I'll be back with your calls after that. Here, there.
and everywhere. SAFM 105.3 FM in Uppington. Good day, good day, Pimelo. It's Emmanuel from Alex. Uh, Pimelo, uh, I'm glad about your guest. He's talking something very strong. Uh, since he's in Venda, I'm also from Venda. If 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 he knows the history of Mapumbu, Great Zimbabwe, going back to 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 Egypt and everything. Uh, if we wanna preserve our history and preserve our tradition, everything needs to start spirituality. And if we continue to scratch on the top, we won't conserve and preserve our culture and history. So. I remember there was a time when we grew up when we used to be told stories while we were sitting at the, um, uh, at the fire. And there was a time when we used to go to the mountain. Now they no longer do that. The media and those so-called doctors, they try to discourage us. So this, this is a very good systematic thing that is operating that still exists today. We need to conquer that first spirituality. Thank you. Good, uh, good afternoon, my lady. I'm in support of this professor. Professor is touching a very important point of uh, traditional medicine. You see, you know, you see, my lady. Yesterday, uh, when Blade Zimane was uh, doing a media briefing, he touched a bit on the issue of of, of vaccine, where he said, uh, "King uh, Goodwill Zulitin uh, has encouraged everybody to take the vaccine." I was not happy with that statement because I expect the king of the Zulu people to advocate for traditional for traditional medicine uh, than the the Western medicine. So, as Africans, I believe before the arrival of white people, Africans were surviving uh, in a certain ways, in a traditional way. So, of which I believe that uh, the tra- traditional medicine should also be used and or should also. Uh, be allowed to be used to fight this COVID-19. Let us not only rely on the vaccine. Let this. Let let our scientists also go and check as to uh, how can our traditional medicine uh, can fight this COVID-19. Thank you, Lucas Matlang and Thank you so much for those. Professor Abel Pina is in conversation with me around preserving our cultural practices, which actually have been around um, from time immemorial, and we've we've lost track. So, Prof, I'm, I'm listening to these voice notes, and I want to say, okay, we are here now. A lot has been lost. Mm-hmm. How do we revitalize, and more importantly, who needs to be custodians of knowledge that is already lost? Um, you know, Pamela, um, the first thing is uh, when I look, and I, I'm going to speak from a Khoisan perspective, mm-hmm. um, when I look at the knowledge and how knowledge was preserved by mm. our four parents, yes. uh, you know, um, I always um, have this inference uh, because when one enters a cave, mm-hmm. you always see those uh, writings mm-hmm. and those certain drawings in the cave, mm-hmm. and it's systematically the same. And that's why I know that uh, even when you, I, I have been in the Northern Cape Cave, mm-hmm. and I've been in the Lesotho Cave, mm-hmm. it's the same people mm-hmm. and the same clans that's there. Mm-hmm. So firstly, I'm wondering where the 
all knowledge is not being preserved and I would not really totally blame our foreparents mm. because they in their own way have uh, left um, the knowledge for us. The, 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 the only challenge that we have currently mm. is how to interpret that knowledge mm. and make it alive for the current mm. uh, uh, um, uh, Africans to understand what happened, who lived there and how did they live. Mm. So firstly, in their own way before the colonization, they have penned it down, whether it was by virtue of drawings and with plants and animals. And I always have the inference that if we were not westernized to write with the alphabet that we are writing with now in Africa, we would have written mm. with a certain script mm. that includes animals and plants mm. because we are very close to that. Mm. And I'm actually waiting for people that specialize in this uh, 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 field to try and convince me because I think if you really look at the writings on a case wall, mm -hmm. it tells a story. Mm -hmm. And uh, But we cannot interpret those stories mm -hmm. because we have lost that touch. Mm -hmm. We have been oppressed to 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 connect with what what was there before but that is not all lost mm -hmm. so how do we preserve it and who should be the custodian mm -hmm. we are the custodians we just don't take the opportunity to take the custodianship mm -hmm. and search and delve deeper into things that was that built us and we do not ask critical questions mm -hmm. on why are things like that? Mm. What worked for us? And uh, I have noted it with myself that um, if I, for example, have flu mm. uh, and I take uh, um, Lingana and Benarate, mm. it, uh, my, my genes immediately recognize it and uh, I'm getting over my flu faster mm. than when I drink the Western medicine. And with this, I don't despise Western medicine. I'm, I'm actually pleading for the coexistence, for the coexistence. As the last caller said, that why are we not? Why are we only going in one direction? Why are we not exploring our indigenous direction? In how did we in 1918 uh, conquer the flu uh, uh, as indigenous Africans? Because remember, we hardly had access to Western healthcare in that time and we survived that flu of 1918 what did we do what brought us through that and when we speak to indigenous communities which they are still doing since time immemorial they have their own practices of uh, um, confronting these pandemics that came mm. or that comes into our communities so Prof. Pina, sorry to barge in. I thought I thought you had finished your thought there. We spoke to a registered um, Western dietitian just the other day who mm -hmm. spoke of how genetically different people respond to different medicine types and mm -hmm. diets because their genes recognize mm -hmm. the, the mm -hmm. type of diet that they used to have. So in other words, if penicillin, for argument's sake, and I'm just really being using this as an example, mm -hmm. it, it was effective in, in, in Europe, mm -hmm. it, it doesn't mean that lingana 
will not be more effective in a child that grows in a region where Lingana is indigenous because mm-hmm. their forefathers mm-hmm. used to use Lingana. So genetic makeup of a people mm-hmm. and medicines are very interlinked into health. Mm-hmm. And this was somebody who was speaking from a scientific Western medicine point of view. Mm-hmm. I, I fully agree with that, uh, Pamela. And uh, I'm also speaking from a scientific mm. African perspective mm. in the sense that uh, I need to just put a precursor there that uh, our African indigenous uh, medicine men and women does the same research mm. that's logic and consistent mm. because when they say a certain medicine is working, mm. they might be following a sick animal mm-hmm. who eats of different plants mm-hmm. and then they do that combination in order to heal a certain illness and that's where the different combinations mm. in african indigenous healthcare come from so if you look at the western system where we go to the lab uh, we also try the different uh, uh, um, different plants or uh, or medicines in order to get a combination that's working against the bacteria or the virus. And that is the same thing that uh, um, uh, uh, our ancestors Mm. or our foreparents used to do. The felt was their lab. Mm. We have the chief of the Khoisan community in the Northern Cape that whenever we go on an excursion with students, that always say to the students, the felt is our lab and our pharmacy. Mm. Let me just so take a quick break, Prof. I'm going to go into trouble here. I've got to take this break and I'm going to take your calls. I do see you, Lawrence. I see many of you also calling in. I'm going to take that in a short while. SAFM 104 to 107 nationwide. Leading the conversation. We're discussing preserving cultural practices, indigenous cultural practices, particularly African indigenous cultural practices. I'm in conversation with Professor Abel Pienaar, a consultant, technical advisor, health reform and innovation education. He's a specialist there. His focus is on reinforcing indigenous communal healing and sustainable health sciences practice in the continent. Lawrence, you've been very patient. Good afternoon. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Ms. Mutine. I can only hope that I'm sufficiently audible on your side. You sound wonderful. Uh, thank you very much. And I think uh, more than anything, the discussion is really thought-provoking. And I-, I couldn't help it but to note the emphasis that you keep making to how do we try and revitalize mm. this communal understanding of African philosophy, if I was to put it mm. in those terms. And I think more than anything, we have... Really, as, as Professor Pinar also establishes it, the, the Western infiltration and reception in this continent has really led us quite astray. And I think, again, I might add the writings of Professor uh, Shaikh Antadiop, who, who, who goes as far as exploring the manner in which societal structures were organized in this continent. And he goes on to explore a little bit more in detail the link between patrilineage and matrilineage. And I think, with that being said, 
in, 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 in recent times, with the infiltration of some Western philosophies, we have had a high reception of patriarchy and matriarchy against the backdrop of patrilineage and matrilineage. And much of what we have been trying to do as society in somewhat moving forward has been attacking and challenging patriarchy at the expense of establishing African understandings such as matrilineage and patrilineage and, 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 and matrilineage. And if you, if you look at this within the legal frameworks, because I understand where the professor is coming from and where you'd be coming from, but looking at it from legal frameworks, it actually goes in depth. In the, in the last decade or two, what we have been seeing coming out in South African jurisprudence has been more of a challenge to patriarchy at the expense of patrilineage. We've been seeing various judgments coming from the apex court actually challenging the understandings which are more oriented towards patriarchy and by virtue of it automatically somewhat bearing an impact on patrilineage. And so I think just to add that, just a view to say, while we are trying to see how can we revitalize these African philosophies, we need to have a more broader and contextual outlook. Professor Pina? Uh, my response to that, I would say the listener is quite spot on because uh, I always say that, um, you know, there's a different equality in Africa that we always must interpret with patriarchy. Mm-hmm. You know that women are actually very powerful in the African culture and we always interpret it from a total Western lens of of patriarchy, that uh, there's oppression, there's uh, everything, but um, there's certain cultural and, as I say, right of passages. For example, uh, uh, women in menopause have got equal decision-making or equal can enter equal places as uh, the indigenous men uh, uh, could enter in. But... uh, um, before menopause, there's a different equality where there is gender roles. And it's not uh, gender is described totally different mm-hmm. from an African perspective mm-hmm. uh, uh, than what we understand it from a Western perspective by male-female role. Because in the African perspective, you uh, I mean, when you look at certain spiritual divination that uh, people would very easily, when they divinate, go into... Um, a feminine role for divination and come back out of the feminine role or mm. even if the healer is called uh, um, for healing mm-hmm. through the uncle's calling mm. and the uncle has passed on mm. the female healer will divinate in a masculine persona mm. and and it has nothing to do with the western gender mm. it is not understood from the western context it's is the complexity and the simplicity of Africa to be, uh, to be, and uh, the I am because you are. Mm. So, so those um, equalities. That's why in Africa, from the perspective that the previous uh, listener has said, that we need to be very careful to see it only from to challenge the system. Like uh, when you uh, um, look at the concept, um, a child is hurt, uh, uh, is seen and not hurt. 
uh, I think we can interpret it very negatively Mm -hmm. if we do not understand the African origins of it. Mm -hmm. That in actual fact, children was taught uh, was taught respect mm-hmm. when uh, 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 adults are there and have discussions mm-hmm. or, or have the family meetings mm-hmm. that children should have a certain respect and ethical code. Mm-hmm. And that code was transferred within the family, mm-hmm. within family meetings. That's why I say that uh, we neglect how would we bring the revitalization back is to make families responsible to teach the children who and what they are from an African perspective. And the second thing is to make communities responsible, to take responsibility that uh, the the fact that when we grew up that my child is your child Mm. uh, is not there anymore because Mm. Mm. we have gone into the new uh, nuclear families where you actually even become angry mm. if another parent in a school meeting mm. call your child to oh, order mm. because they misbehave. Yeah. And that was not seen when we were brought up. We belong to the community and any adult in the community mm. could reprimand a child that moves out of the way. Mm-hmm. So now it's only the parents and hardly the parents because we have laws that also prohibits certain things. And not that I'm against that laws because uh, there's a difference in uh, uh, disciplining and abuse. So there's a total difference between that. So I'm not against the laws, but sometimes these laws are abused within the legal system in order to silence the parents, in order to, to be totally responsible for that first level education. Let's take those calls 011-714-2006 I'll be back with your call Joy, I'll be back with your call Mzugisi SAFM 104 to 107 nationwide, leading the conversation My goodness, we, we are running so short of time. Let me go quickly to Joy who's calling from Peter Maritzburg Joy, hi. Hello Hi um, Joy I, I was very interested to hear the professor's a speech about African medicine and the benefits mm. it has been in the past. Mm. But is it applicable today when millions of black people are living in towns and in um, townships that are so crowded that they have no access to these herbs? So they would have to use conventional medicine or be ill. Professor Pino. I think the, uh, j- just to uh, moderate uh, our caller that uh, you, you see, um, I deliberately use the word African medicine or plant medicine or even animal medicine and not the word herbs because if one uses the word herbs, it uh, it has another meaning and maybe in a nutritional aspect we can use the word herbs. And I agree with the with the caller that sometimes when we live in cities you might not have access to this, but a number of us, I'm living in Pretoria, the capital, and I have access because every time I go to the rural area, my family have got uh, indigenous medicine gardens and they give me. A a number of times we are connected and those who are not connected, uh, and I think it's this deliberate actions that we need to take in order possibly to have uh, indigenous garden for medicine and spices, which we could use 
uh, in healthy nutrition. And when you are in an overpopulated area, uh, I think when I look at the Asian context, when I look at India and them, they they selling this indigenous plants in the biggest cities. You can walk into an indigenous medicine shop and buy these things just as you buy Western medicine from a chemist. So it's the, the rollout of the healthcare system. Because even in Asia, China and all those countries, you can walk into um, an academic hospital and choose whether you go for indigenous health or Western healthcare. And you can even go for both and then decide what are you going to stick to. So that choice is not necessarily in Africa for us because I will have to drive to a certain area to enter into um, when I want to practice indigenous health. And these investments, the rollout of this system, are not planned and done effectively. Mm. And I know the, the Department of Science and Technology Science, technology, and innovation is trying the level best, even in having recordings and having certain practices or intellectual properties rights registered in this sense. But the investment and the rollout is still very slow, especially in the gap that we missed. So, um, and if we do not have legal systems, illegal practices start. Because if in cities, especially at the robots, you might find people that give you a list and say, Professor so-and-so from Malawi that can heal this. Now, uh, I normally uh, get very amused by that because that's an illegal system that's running because there is no legal uh, practices that's uh, openly practiced within the country. And when you are in, 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 in countries like India, and uh, uh, Pakistan and those countries where there is an openness for coexistence for indigenous as well as the Western practices, you find less and less of this uh, quacks, the yeah. quacks or yeah. the malpracticing people that stands on the streets because uh, I do it from my home site or I know where the, the healers are. It lives with me in the community. Even in congested community, you find healers. Yeah. And yeah. we just need to uh, uh, um, plan our revitalization mm. and the willingness from the whole healthcare system to not to accommodate, to accept that the African indigenous health system has stood the test of time. So, Joy, uh, the, I mean, the, uh, Prof, and I, I don't know if you can touch on this quickly. There are a couple of issues that uh, Joy is talking to. And, and one is the issue that always comes up when you speak okay. about African indigenous people is the issue of land. So that in itself mm-hmm. is very connected to a people and is very important. And then there is another issue of how the people have had to have had to go underground to preserve. And we've been talking about how a colonized country and a people have had to find other innovative ways to carry on. And we haven't spoken about how a cultural practice and practices have had to go underground. So just because people are in cities and in townships and in crowded spaces doesn't mean that there isn't access. Access is there. It's whether there's 
you know, advocacy and whether there is regulation that allows all of this to come to the surface in such a way that we can all benefit in, in, in a mutual manner. And you're talking to mm-hmm. departments of science, innovation and, and technology who, who are trying to do all of this. I'm worried that we're taking too long, Professor Pina. We are now, you know, 20 plus years into democracy and we're still trying I, I, I concur with you, and I think uh, the fact that we take too long is, is literally that we, we are in a stupor because when you have been oppressed and when you have been uh, uh, um, kept under and you had to work underground, even if those people that were punishing you are gone, you still have that anxiety, you know, it's an anxiety. Uh, colonial hegemony is an anxiety, and even to be associated with it. And normally when I tell people that, you know, I do have a PhD in health sciences, and I'm trained at Western universities, though I chose to specialize in indigenous knowledge systems or in indigenous health, they, they become so shocked. And just by the mere fact that they see that you are educated and you still can talk, the same language that the foreparents talked and put your reason there, which is most of the time scientific, uh, people are bought over. They, they saliently believe that, but we're too scared to communicate it. And it's that hegemony that makes them not to communicate it. And the, the main thing is there needs to be a deliberate budget, and especially mm-hmm. a budget to regularize and to support indigenous healers to come out clearly because then the quacks will go i mean there is a system to accredit indigenous healers Mm. and there is a council of indigenous healers Mm. uh, uh, that already exists is just that these things are not funded uh, uh, um, effectively Mm -hmm. and they are not um, uh, advocated and, and and advertised effectively and also from uh, an educational perspective from schools and universities higher education systems we keep on talking about the transformation of curricula but when you step up and you say that let's transform the curricula to this way uh, there is the sudden shock of the western educated colleagues that still want to clean to the class test and the and the and the Western system of punitive assessment, which actually sort of limit your education uh, in that sense, because if you look at the the, the 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 training of indigenous healers, and now I'm talking about the real training that is over time and the steps that they go through, it's it's rather an in-depth clinical process. And if you look at what we do in nursing medicine and all those clinical fields, we segregate the theory and the practice. Mm-hmm. And when you look at indigenous healing, at, at the, the training of Ukutwaza, mm-hmm. um, there is no segregation. There is uh, the, the, the clinical and the theoretical go hand in hand, mm-hmm. and there is a process of, of deliberate mentoring uh, and staying with the person. Uh, it's a different kind of mentoring that... Uh, increase the competence of the person when they get out of there. Mm. Uh, whereas we as uh, um, uh, Western clinicians 
cannot say the same. Mm. You actually become very scared mm. when you uh, sign off students to go to the practice because you yeah, are never sure of yeah. their competence yeah. because you were not there. Yeah. You were not the mentor that walked hand in hand with them. Okay. And the support that Western clinical students, uh, I mean the support that indigenous uh, uh, healing students are getting is not the support that we give to Western-trained health clinicians. Whether it's nurses, doctors, physiotherapists, we really lack that clinical hands-on support mm. to uh, our trainee practitioners. Uh, let, let's take a quick break for the news. I'll be back to just conclude the conversations and take uh, some of the few voice notes and, and calls that have come through for you. It is 2 o'clock. Let me go to Nandika Bukas for the latest in SABC News. Life happens with Pimelo Mutine. Pimelo Mutine on SAFM. On SAFM. Good afternoon, Pimelo. Interesting topic, but you know what? Prof Pinar, you can blame the Western all you want. The reason why people do not want to continue using this traditional medicine is it's messed up. And people, they use it for witchcraft. And some of you, you are gatekeeping. Some of those people are in bed with the same Western companies. Because the Western, they will not be so stable if they, if they were no enablers within that traditional camp. They take whatever is here in Africa, they sell it to the Western. And they come back, they sell it to us at a very high price so you cannot blame that if you guys as the traditional uh, doctors you know indigenous indigenous uh, medicine you can clean up your own backyard before you start pointing fingers because it is so messed up look right now we have the COVID. you guys oh you are not together you're not a union you are scattered so sort out your own house first Good, good afternoon, uh, Pimelo. Um, it's Jeronike from Christiana. I think the custodians of indigenous knowledge, including indigenous practices, um, medical practices, has to be the Department of Arts, Culture, Sports and Recreation. I'm saying this because of it is already the custodian of heritage in South Africa and what is heritage, you know. Heritage has to be construed in such a way that it includes everything that speaks to the culture of Africans, you know, including indigenous knowledge. So I think the responsibility has to be there to preserve um, African uh, practices. Hi, talking about African medicines, I agree that we should go to your traditional medicines, but majority of the people are now gone into Western medicines. I'll tell you the reason why I had a friend of mine Grew up from the age of nine, Indian guy, doing African medications and African medicines with his uncle's business. And from the age of nine, he worked on it and he had the experience and he opened up his own shop. And he had to close the shop because he was getting no business, he went bankrupt. So I believe people have turned to Western, Western medicines and that's the trend at the moment. Thank you very much. Hi, SK. Thank you very much for having brought Prof. Pinner to the studio to talk about the indigenous practice system. 
This is the subject that has long been overdue. Thank you very much. James Oliphant from Kimberley. Thank you. All right. Let me go back to Professor Abel Pinar, who's uh, been listening very patiently to some of the voice notes coming through. Prof? Yes, thank you, Pamela. I actually, um, uh, the first caller, the lady who yes. called and said that uh, the, the traditional your... healers must mm-hmm. get their house in order. Mm-hmm. Can you hear me, Pamela? Yes, I can. I definitely Yes, can. should get their house in order. Mm-hmm. I think she has a point, but uh, she also missed the boat there in the sense that if you really look at the structures, there's no clear structures in place for this grouping to get their house in order. There is no clear and overt support and financial investment, like, for example, like in the Western healthcare system, although in indigenous healing it might be more cost-effective. And she's quite right by uh, naming that some of the uh, healers or community members sell their rights to the Western uh, 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 health practitioners or to the pharmaceutical companies to be quite straight. And that is the fear of really recording, especially in medicine, is that the pharmaceutical companies, remember that all medicine is is plant or animal product based, mm. uh, or most of the medicine, mm. unless it's done synthetically mm. where they mimic the order of the medicine, mm. but most medicine is plant based. So uh, pharmaceutical companies have run out of innovative ideas and they're praying on indigenous healers, indigenous communities, or where there's colloquiums or conferences in order to have innovative processes. And I normally talk about the, 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 uh, um, in, where indigenous people sell. It, 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 it becomes like a, a plant prostitution or an idea prostitution where they sell it for the use of uh, Western medicine. So that is a, it, it's a clear fear. I could hear the fear in her voice and also the, the I have not blamed the Western system. All I mentioned are facts uh, uh, because the laws are there. So this is not a blame that is baseless, that is facts. And when we get back to the land system, uh, uh, there is actually that we touched on earlier on is that the question that there is no land for the Africans in Africa it's actually an embarrassment. And I'm from the Northern Cape, where you get, and the Northwest I also know quite well, where you get that most of the farmers have four or five farms where a family is scraped into a one room. And is that fair? What is the process that we need to look at at land distribution? And also having a student that done research on indigenous people's land used for mining and you see the total unfairness and again the 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 prostitution of some community members where they sold out the rights of the community and even when it comes to mining material the law of south africa that say that even if you own land you don't own the rights of the precious stones that might arise from that land so those systems those legal systems is very oppressive so before we could say that uh, we're blaming the apartheid system or we blame the West 
we need to look at our own legal system, which is based, as my uh, uh, the caller said earlier on, on the Roman laws and all these kind of laws that from the Western, and we do not explore broadly on what should we have done in Africa. Okay, let me take quickly, Mzukisi, you calling from Cape Town. Hi. Good afternoon to you and Dr. Pinar. Afternoon. Um, you say we have lost our being as Africans. We have lost who we are. Look at how this interview is conducted, in what language. We are united by what is not ours, which is English. As a young black man, I cannot let my hair, my 4D kinky coil type of work grow without being questioned. Why, when are you going to cut your hair? Or when are you going to style your hair? So those are the very basics in our culture that we have lost. As a result, if I cannot speak English, I am not smarter than the caller who spoke English. So those are the the basic things that also need to be fixed, including everything that you've been speaking about. And I'm happy that we're having these conversations. I understand that we are not going to fix everything overnight. But uh, the most important thing that I think we must do, we must stop waiting for other people to validate us especially the West, we must stop, keep on blaming on the West. We must start doing what we know is going to be the best for us. Whether the West or China is validating it or not, we are the richest uh, continent in the world, yet we are the poorest people on earth. So these conversations are going to be very helpful. We must just keep on having them. We must not stop. One day we will see the difference of um, people like you, Professor, and you, Pamela, and the listeners who are bringing on board. Thank you very much thank for you. taking my call. Thank you have so a good much. day. Thank you, Mzugisi, there in Cape Town. I'm going to have to thank you, Professor Pina. We've, we've actually spoken for more than an hour, <laughs> an hour, <laughs> 20 minutes, and, and we haven't even scratched the surface. I'm going to have to ask you to come back. I know you're leaving. But uh, we will definitely Skype and continue discussions. It's a very important discussion. Thank you for your time one more time. Thank you. Thank you, Pamela. And thank you to the listeners and also those ones who uh, 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 allege that we are blaming the West. We are, this is an open dialogue and this is a discourse. So, and, but thank you for the support that we are getting and that this is, a very good platform, Pamela, and you are most welcome. You. I would like to come here again to engage with South Africa on the issues that we are all wondering about and that we can learn from each other. Appreciate it, Professor Abel Pienaar, consultant and technical advisor on health reform and innovative education. His focus is on reinforcing indigenous communal healing as a sub, uh, sustainable health science and practice in the continent. That conversation will be available as a podcast.